welcome to Film Broad C, a podcast for women who want to learn how to write and produce a film they love. If you're a newbie writer or filmmaker, or an actress who's tired of auditions for one-dimensional roles, if you're overseeing yet another badly written script from a mediocre white man and you want to do something about it, you're in the right place. Get inspired by the pioneering women of the golden age of Hollywood through to today's changemakers and disruptors with practical how-tos to finally write and produce your damn script already. I'm your host, Emily Grace. Welcome to the show. Welcome to episode six. By the time this episode drops, the SAGA Awards will have already happened. But right now, I don't know who won, but I have seen poor things. In fact, inside the Make Shit Happen Club, we had a special event to talk through the three-act structure of the film. It's got such a phenomenal performance by Emma Stone. Just that precision with which she tracks the evolution of that character is amazing. And Mark Ruffalo, Ruffalo, I don't know how to say it, but he's so delightful in the film. He's obviously an actor up there having fun. It's a fantastic role for him. Now, I won't give anything away if you haven't already seen the film, but I will say from a three-act structure perspective, it does hit all the elements. Now, you and I are going to dive into three-act structure in a later podcast episode, so you'll understand more about what I'm talking about, but it does hit all of the elements. Now, feature films and short films follow the same three-act structure. It's just the page count will be different. In a short film, you have to be incredibly efficient. Poor Things is not incredibly efficient with its storytelling. Just Act One is 40 minutes long, which is especially long for a feature film, but it does speak to the fact that when you have credibility and a body of work, you can bend the rules and break the rules. One of my favorite things to do after I watch a film or a TV show is to read the review, or if it's a TV show, it's the recap. That is one of the things that has made me such a better writer. It helps me firmly grasp the tools that I'm sharing with you in this podcast, and you start to see those tools reflected back through the eyes of the reviewer. Things like compelling characters, the central question, the theme of the film, a good reviewer will absolutely pick up on all of those things, and sometimes they will bring a story that felt kind of murky to me into clear focus. Now, when I'm watching a film, I want to get lost in the the actor's performance. I want to watch what's happening on screen. And sometimes I miss the dialogue, right? The sound mixing now is so weird. And I have a mild hearing loss. I actually wear hearing aids. And even with that help, sometimes I can't always catch the dialogue that's happening. So, you know, my husband and I will jack up the volume because the actor's dialogue is like so internal and it's very very whispery and so you jack the volume all the way up and then the transition scene comes with like chopper helicopter transition sound really loud and it's like thanks sound mixer I can hear the helicopter but I'd really prefer to hear the dialogue 
Now, there are times where I will turn on the subtitles, and that can clear up a lot of things that might have felt murky. But the first time I watch something, I don't want to be reading it off the screen. I want to be watching the actors' faces. So there are times where I'll watch something multiple times to really analyze it and really grasp all of the clues that the writer has left. But sometimes a reviewer will help snap into focus some things that I might have missed. So of course, after poor things, I ran to the reviews. One of the places that I think does a great job is RogerEbert.com. Of course, no one is great at reviews as Roger Ebert was, RIP, but the site itself is pretty high quality. And I want to read part of it to you right now. So the reviewer is talking about the incredible costume design, and she's pointing out the production design and how cool all of these things are. And then she says, but none of these exquisite technical elements matter if we don't care about the woman at the center of them. And we do. In my opinion, the Bella Baxter character is endlessly compelling. She grabs our attention in Act 1, and she keeps it for two and a half hours. It's two hours and 22 minutes, if you want to be uh, accurate. And this idea that the reviewer mentions speaks directly into what I talked about on Episode 3. Is your idea good enough is the wrong question. Instead, you want to ask if my characters are compelling enough. Now, Poor Things is a great film, and it does hit all of the structural elements ultimately, but it's a really long film, right? It's almost two and a half hours, and I think it speaks to how compelling those characters are that made us want to go on that journey with them. Now, this episode today is a companion to episode three, where you learned how to set up your protagonist. This episode is about how to structure your antagonist. If you haven't listened to episode three yet, this one is going to make a lot more sense after you do. So by now, you have an idea you're excited to write about. You've got a compelling three-dimensional protagonist in place. For this idea to grab your audience, now you need to add some conflict, and that's where your antagonist comes in. In a little bit, I'm going to talk you through the antagonist from The Devil Wears Prada, played by Meryl Streep. But first, let's just clarify the protagonist and the antagonist. A lot of times before someone works with me inside the Make Shit Happen Club, they tend to have a lot of misconceptions about what these character archetypes are and how they're supposed to function. Don't worry if that's you. I didn't really understand this myself when I was first writing. Despite decades of acting training and reading thousands of scripts, when I was developing my TV pilot, I didn't know that I needed an antagonist at all. In the last episode, I talked about why you shouldn't just jump into scene writing, because of course, I've already made that mistake for you. That's exactly what I did with my pilot. I would just write scenes of things that happened to my protagonist. I knew enough to understand that the protagonist was the main character, but I didn't understand how to structure her or the story properly or in a way that would hook people, not until I learned the tools that I'm sharing with you on this podcast. So what is a protagonist and antagonist? Well, first, let's 
just clarify, protagonist does not mean a good person and antagonist does not mean a bad person. They don't automatically equal hero and villain. They can be those things, but they don't have to be structured that way. The protagonist is a character archetype whose function in your script is to drive your story forward. They can be the proxy for the audience who guides us through the story. They're usually the person that we root for, and they usually go through the most change. Now, I say usually because, of course, there are exceptions. But season one of this podcast isn't about exceptions. It's about understanding the tools first, building your foundation first, In later seasons, we can talk about how to get more complex or how to bend the rules. Now, if you know you can bend the rules later, why should you bother learning them now? This is a question that I saw come up on a, there's a screenwriter on TikTok who gives out advice who I like to follow. And he was saying something that I kind of didn't agree with. It was about, you know, there are these people who teach screenwriting and they tell you, you should learn the rules first so that you can break them. But if you can break them, why don't you just break them? So here's why I encourage you to learn the rules first. You need to understand the function of the tool that you're using or you're going to use the tool incorrectly. When you understand what the rules are and how they work, that's going to give you what you need to be able to identify what isn't working in your script. If you don't understand structure or character archetypes or what they are or how they function, it's going to be really hard for you to pinpoint what's missing from your script later when you're when you have a solid draft and you're going back and doing revisions. When you can understand what a screenplay should be and how it functions, that's when you can go back and say, hmm, this isn't quite landing or this midpoint is missing or the obstacles aren't quite escalating the way that they should be. You've got to be able to understand how all of these pieces work together so you can understand why it's not working. That's also what I'm here for. One of the things that is my greatest joy is helping a Make Shit Happen club member or a private client develop their project starting with the idea. I can work with you if you're coming in with your script already written. I can do that. I enjoy that. But I really love working with you when it's just an idea in your head because that way we can lay the foundation from the beginning to put all of the right tools in place and test everything along the way to make sure that it's working. And when you're the writer, Sometimes you're just not able to assess your own work objectively. You might not know what is missing. You don't have an eye for that. I do. Part of my job is to help identify what you can't see yet. And part of why I'm so good at that is because I've invested years really understanding these tools, how they function. I love watching films and analyzing the structure That's one of the reasons why I'm so good at this is because I really have invested in understanding the rules and the tools and why they work and identify when they don't work. Okay, so let's do a little recap on your protagonist. Your main, it's your main character, the person who's driving the story forward. They take the audience through the story and they go through the most change. Now let's talk about your antagonist. 
Your antagonist is also a character archetype that is the person or force that prevents the protagonist from getting what they want. Their function in your script is to directly challenge the protagonist. They don't have to be a bad person. They don't even have to be a villain. They don't have to be unlikable. Many antagonists are beloved characters that the audience roots for. The label of an antagonist only refers to their function in the story. It's not a reference to their personal qualities. That part is the fun part for you as the writer. And when you design these two characters to clash before you even start scripting, you lay that foundation for solid structure and a successful script before you even write the first word. It's going to make your life so much easier down the road if you structure these two characters properly now. So I've described the antagonist as a person or a force. So in some projects, your antagonist will manifest as like the system of oppression or a force of nature, if it's a disaster film, for example. But if you're new to screenwriting, I highly recommend that you make your antagonist a person, not a force. Please just go with me on this one. Let's not overcomplicate it. It really is the fastest way for you to understand the function of the antagonist by making them into a character. Now, for example, my current short film, Pigeon, The antagonist is the pigeon. (laughs) It's a real pigeon. Uh, I've got B-roll footage of this fucking pigeon that poops on my pool every day. So it's an animal in this case, but I structured the pigeon as if it were a human being, as if it were a character. Now, speaking of pigeon, I just want to pop in with a quick pigeon watch, pigeon update. I'm embarking on my pre-production process and I'm feeling a lot of resistance. I'm feeling very overwhelmed and I am stuck in procrastination at the moment. So if you feel that way about your own project, I just want to reassure you that's perfectly normal. Now, in my case, I've hired a crowdfunding expert to coach me through my crowdfunding process. It's been years since I've done a crowdfund and things are different now. We we did it in person. We used to do our crowdfunds in person. So I have a coach that is holding me accountable that I have deadlines I have to meet. And that accountability outside of myself is the biggest thing that's motivating me to push through the discomfort and shake off my resistance. It's one of the reasons why I think coaching is so absolutely valuable. Because if it was just up to me, If I weren't talking about this project with you on this podcast, if I didn't have my coach in place, I could just convince myself to stay where it's safe and comfortable and hide in my cave of safety and not have to step into the shoes that I'm required to step into to make this project happen. So if you know that accountability is going to be important for you to shake off your resistance, I want to encourage you to get into the Make Shit Happen Club. I am honored to help my members move their projects forward. I'm really good at keeping you accountable. I'm just not good at keeping myself accountable. That's why we hire coaches, because we put our money where our mouth is. We have something at risk, and that is a motivator. So if that speaks to you, if you want to get out of your procrastination, go to writeyourshort.com to see how you can join us inside the Make Shit Happen Club. If you have any questions about that, just DM me on Instagram at the only Emily Grace. So we're talking about 
making your antagonist a person, not a force or being or manifestation. And by now, you know how passionate I am that you start with a short film. Short films just work better when the antagonist is a person. Now, in old Hollywood, the antagonist often showed up as the femme fatale, right? The scheming woman with no morals who exploits the protagonist's weakness and his lust for her to do her bidding, which is essentially the plot of the 1944 film Double Indemnity, which was based on the book of the same name and directed by Billy Wilder. He also directed Sunset Boulevard, another classic film you've probably heard of. And the double indemnity script was co-written by Raymond Chandler. Now, Raymond Chandler's novel, The Big Sleep, became a film of the same name, which was directed by Billy Wilder and starred Bogey and Bacall, who I briefly mentioned in the last episode. And The Big Sleep is also the first mention of the detective character, Philip Marlowe, who was an inspiration for Natasha Lyonne's recent TV series, Poker Face, which is another fantastic example of an actress taking her success into her own hands by creating something so unique. No one but Natasha Lyonne could have played that character. I love how all of these threads connect. It's kind of like uh, one of the lines from Tropic Thunder with Robert Downey Jr.'s character says, I'm a dude playing a dude disguised as another dude and ben stiller's character says the dudes are emerging <laughs> so anyway the threads connect the dudes are emerging okay so double indemnity this was a film that starred fred mcmurray as the protagonist walter neff and barbara stanwyck as the antagonist phyllis dietrichson it is a film noir crime thriller she plays the evil temptress who entices the hapless protagonist into her web of lies, deceit, and murder. She convinces Walter Neff, the insurance salesman, to help her kill her husband so they can split the money. If the husband is murdered, it will trigger the double indemnity clause in the insurance policy and it will double the payout, see? <laughs> So the film's conflict comes from Neff and Dietrichson. They're trying to get away with murder and get that payout, but suspicions and betrayals escalate to the point of Neff, our protagonist, killing Dietrichson, our antagonist. The temptress must pay the ultimate price for her sins. Now, this film is considered a classic. It had seven Oscar nominations, including a Best Actress nomination for Barbara Stanwyck. And the film's morality is pretty indicative of the time when it was released, which is 1944. This is about nine, nine or ten years into the enforcement of the Hayes Code. But before that, before the code was enforced, there was what's known as the pre-code era, which was an incredible time to be an actress. The pre-code era was between 1929 and 1934, when the talkies became widely accepted and before the Motion Picture Production Code, aka the Hayes Code, became the law. The code was essentially a form of censorship that was pushed forward by religious conservatives who feared that the talkies were flaunting an amoral way of life. Now, during this period of time, 
Movies featured stories about promiscuity and drug use, powerful women who had active sex lives. The movie going public was predominantly women, so naturally, the majority of leading roles were played by women. It was a time of freedom and expression and agency and sexuality and strength and power for women. Now, before 1929, there were essentially two categories for female characters, the ingenue and the vamp. Mary Pickford, who you'll remember from episode one, who's also part of the inspiration for my company name, Pickford West, she really exemplified the ingenue, sweet, innocent, virtuous, morally good, and of course, virginal. And then there was Mae West, who embodied the vamp, who is the second part of the inspiration of Pickford West society. She her characters were bold, they were sexually empowered, and morally bad by some standards. But Mae West, whose heyday really fell in the midst of the pre-code era, she wrote scripts to fight against this need for the vamp to have to be redeemed in the end. Her perspective was a woman who could embody her sexuality without any shame, which was very on brand for the pre-code era. This period also coincided with widespread availability of birth control in the form of diaphragms and spermicidal jelly. Women had the vote. They were stepping into their power, claiming their freedom, both on screen and in real life, which, of course, ruffled a lot of feathers, right? They got five good years and then sexism, misogyny, and pearl-clutching types banded together over their moral outrage to set about taking the movies down and getting women back in the kitchen where they belong, the result being the Motion Picture Production Code. Now, this is obviously a very brief version of events, and I'm not a historian. I do my best, but I will probably have to do an episode about the code at some point in the future. But the short version is motion pictures now had to adhere to a series of rules to get their films distributed, which was just a fancy way of saying they had to censor the crap out of them. They had strict guidelines like no suggestive nudity, no lustful kissing, no interracial relationships on screen, bad guys had to lose, good guys had to win, no glamorizing crime or sympathy for criminals, no profane language, and so on. The implementation of the code changed the depiction of women on screen for decades. They became the morally good love interest, the thanklessly supportive spouse, the femme fatale who must be punished or redeemed. Now, even though the code was lifted in the 1960s, women are still pushing back against the effects of it today. But before the code happened, there were incredible roles for women, like Barbara Stanwyck's turn as Lily Powers in the movie Babyface. Now, from what I could find, Barbara Stanwyck was not a multi-hyphenate. She was primarily an actress, but she was incredibly daring and courageous, and she got to play some awesome roles during the pre-code era. Now, one of those roles was in Babyface, which is a 1933 film about Lily Powers. Powers, right? Even her name was Confident Powerful. So Lily Powers is the daughter of a speakeasy owner. 
She's been pimped out by her daddy to his customers since she was 14. And when he dies in an accident, Lily is encouraged by the local cobbler, the only man in her life who she trusts, to go make something of her life. So she hops the train to New York City to do just that. The movie follows Lily's sexual escapades as she sleeps her way up the ladder of power and success in a big city bank. It showcases prostitution, moral corruption, gold digging, and a powerful woman who chooses to use her sexuality for her own financial gain rather than just be passively exploited by the shitty men in her personal life. Now, for the times, this film was already considered risque, but apparently the version of the film that movie critics in our modern day have been pointing to and had access to is actually a somewhat censored version of the film. So an original copy of the film was discovered like sometime in the last 20 years, which showed critics that the film that they had thought was so scandalous and risque and progressive was actually censored even further than the original film. So part of what they discovered in the uncensored version is that scene between Lily and the cobbler when he encourages her to go make something of her life. So let me read the difference between these two scenes. Here is the dialogue from the censored scene. Lily asks the cobbler, what chance has a woman got? And the cobbler answers, more chance than men. A woman, young, beautiful like you, can get anything she wants in the world. But there is a right way and a wrong way. Remember, the price of the wrong way is too great. Go to some big city where you will find opportunities. Don't let people mislead you. You must be a master, not a slave. Be clean, be strong, defiant, and you will be a success. You can hear the censorship, right? Be clean, right way and wrong way. You can kind of hear the censorship knowing what we know now. So let me read you the dialogue in the uncensored version. This was the original version of the film. Lily asks the cobbler, what chance has a woman got? And the cobbler answers, more chance than men. A woman, young, beautiful like you, can get anything she wants in the world because you have power over men. But you must use men, not let them use you. You must be a master, not a slave. Look here. Nietzsche says all life, no matter how we idealize it, is nothing more nor less than exploitation. That's what I'm telling you. Exploit yourself. Go to some big city where you will find opportunity. Use men. Be strong, defiant. Use men to get the things you want. Now, that's a very different film, isn't it? Like, just the change in that speech actually changes the entire trajectory of the film because it puts Lily's actions in the context of embodying Nietzsche philosophy, of embodying this idea of life is about exploitation. So I'm going to intentionally exploit myself to get what I want, instead of just letting myself be exploited, right? It just changes her motivation just enough to make this film even more scandalous and risque and progressive than critics thought it was. And there's this Instagram reel that makes the rounds. It's a black and white scene between this particularly lecherous man with a mustache who's 
patting the thigh of a young woman who's not interested in his advances. So she picks up her coffee cup and dumps it right onto him, which gets him to stop patting her thigh. And then she sort of saunters away powerfully. That is a clip from Babyface. So if you've seen that clip, that's like a little sneak peek into what this film is about. The pre-code era was such a time for women in film, and we're finally seeing a resurgence of women-led projects that are pushing boundaries, that are compelling and exciting roles. And this is an amazing time for you to write a role like that for yourself. Now is the time you have the access and the ability, and so many people are craving seeing women represented on screen in more powerful, exciting roles than, you know, what has been the mainstream available roles up until now. If you're thinking about writing a role like this, do it. Now is the time. So let's talk about how to get your script into tip-top shape by structuring your antagonist properly. This show is sponsored by Write Your Short. If you want to write and produce a script that you love, but you don't know how to get started, go to writeyourshort.com. Don't create in a vacuum or try to figure this out all by yourself. Learn how to write a festival-worthy script you can produce or star in or direct or wear all those hats at once. With writeyourshort.com, you can get the exact next steps you need to take based on where you're at in the process. No guesswork, self-doubt, or overwhelm. Just a proven process to make the most powerful film possible. That's writeyourshort.com. And now, back to the show. So let's talk about how to structure your antagonist to make your script as powerful as possible. In episode three, I talked about the protagonist from The Devil Wears Prada. This character of Andy or Andrea, played by Anne Hathaway, is our protagonist with the following character qualities. An external want, a superpower, a fatal flaw, and an inner need. Every protagonist you write from now on will have those four qualities. And guess what? So will your antagonist. In The Devil Wears Prada, our antagonist is Miranda Priestly, played by Meryl Streep. This film is a great example of a well-structured protagonist and antagonist who are intentionally designed to clash. And the first 10 minutes of this film very clearly set up these characters and their conflict. And by the way, Devil Wears Prada has made like a resurgence on Instagram. There was that funny meme of Meryl Streep and Beyonce. I think it was after the Super Bowl. And Meryl Streep is leaning in and the caption on the meme is like, Blue Ivy's name isn't blue or turquoise or lapis. It's cerulean. That's a famous scene from The Devil Wears Prada. And then there's this great creator... Uh, their account is my underscore miniature underscore things on Instagram, and they recreated that same scene using Barbie dolls. There's this new trend of using Barbie dolls for like housewives and Vanderpump rules content, which I really love. Uh, so it was really fun to happen upon that one from Devil Wears Prada. Okay, so in this film, 
Of course, Meryl Streep's performance makes this film, right? How many memes have we seen of Miranda Priestly in that elevator with the sunglasses pulling them off, right? That character really is what made this movie such a hit. But I would also make a case that the film has such staying power because the story structure is really impeccable. And that story structure starts with setting the protagonist and antagonist up properly from the beginning. So let's talk about Miranda Priestly, our endlessly compelling antagonist. Now in this film, I really think the antagonist is the much more compelling character. I love Anne Hathaway, but I think the writers did her a disservice, right? She had, she did the best that she could with this part. They gave the better part to Meryl Streep. Sometimes it's really fun to play the antagonist. Okay, so Miranda's character qualities, starting with her external want, is continue to make Runway the top magazine. Her superpower is impeccable taste. There's that scene with Stanley Tucci where Stanley Tucci's character says her opinion is the only one that matters, right? She's a fashion icon. She's got impeccable taste. Her fatal flaw is impossible standards and her inner need is meaningful connection. So Miranda Priestly is the editor-in-chief of Runway Magazine. It is the top fashion magazine in the business, and she wants to keep it that way. That is her mission in this film. She has impeccable taste. She has incredible fashion sense. She's completely at the top of her game. She's dressed to the nines at all times, never has a hair out of place, and she wants what she wants when she wants it, which is always right now. Miranda is incredibly high maintenance, demanding, she expects perfection, and she's constantly disappointed because no one can possibly measure up to her standards. This directly challenges Andy's low maintenance, down to earth, regular Jane character. Miranda throws impossible hoop after impossible hoop, and Andy's superpower of determination, which we talked about in episode three, pushes her to jump through every single one of those hoops. What Miranda desperately needs, though, is meaningful connection. But because of her impossible standards, because of her cocoon of perfectionism and impossible standards, it's really difficult for her to get that meaningful connection. Now, let me speak into the inner need and fatal flaw for a minute, because I don't think I talked about this before. These are not things your characters are consciously aware of. Miranda Priestley is not going around saying, oh, I really need meaningful connection, right? It's an inner need within her, that void that needs to be filled, but the character isn't conscious of this need. You as the writer are conscious of it. And Miranda does have a small moment of vulnerability where she shares the news of her divorce with Andy. It's in that hotel room in Paris. But she then immediately shuts down Andy's attempt to be compassionate towards her. However, this character isn't a true villain. Even though Andy quits her job, Miranda, in her own way, she gives Andy a fantastic reference. She tells the new job, of all my assistants, she disappointed me the most. If you don't hire her, you're an idiot, right? It's such a Miranda way of giving a compliment. <laughs> 
Now, Miranda does overcome her fatal flaw of impossible standards. She does find a meaningful connection with Andy, even though she can barely manage to show it. That's, in a nutshell, our antagonist trajectory through this movie. And these two characters are perfectly designed to clash from their very first meeting, and they are perfectly set up to drive the conflict of this film. Now, Andy is the protagonist, so her character naturally goes through the most change, which I talk about in episode three. Miranda is the antagonist who directly challenges the protagonist in all the ways she needs to be able to come the protagonist's fatal flaw. And Miranda does go through her own small transformation, but she's not the protagonist, so it's not her character's function to go through an enormous change. But we do see a little bit of that moment of vulnerability in that hotel room in Paris, and then she quickly shuts it down because her function as the antagonist needs to continue throughout more of the film to push Andy to be able to overcome her fatal flaw in the end. So that's an example of how to structure your protagonist and your antagonist to clash, to make them compelling and nuanced, and to push your conflict forward. So now it's your turn to create your own protagonist and antagonist. Use these four qualities, set them up to clash. First, you want your audience to care about your characters, right? So you want to give them compelling, nuanced choices. And then you want to hook the audience to lean in further by building that conflict. The simplest way to do this is make your antagonist a person, not a force, but a person with these four qualities. You can do this, and I can't wait to see your characters come to life. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next time. If you enjoyed the show, remember to subscribe and even better, leave a five-star review. Ready to finally write your damn script already? Go to writeyourshort.com to get started and connect with me on TikTok at Pickford West Short Film Lab. Your story matters, and who better to tell it than you? Stay tuned for the next episode, and I'll see you there.